We're going to continue this week uh, studying the scriptures that point to the importance of authentic community among God's people. And, and that has to do with motivating us and giving us scriptural reasons for uh, being excited about the fact that we are moving into a season of launching uh, community groups here at Love City. So uh, just a quick kind of overview and review of last week. Uh, we looked at the book of Acts to see how the earliest Christians lived. Um, and, and that's that's something that you always have to contextualize to your culture. So we're not going to look back at the book of Acts and say, we can only do exactly what they did. However, we do want to look back at the heritage of those that have gone before us and see what is it that they did that obviously made sense and what were the reasons that they were doing it, and we can learn from that. Uh, it was obvious from Acts 2 and Acts 5, both scriptures that we looked at, uh, that these believers, these early Christians, did not go to church. They were the church. It was very intentional the way they lived. All of their life was encompassed and interwoven with their mission. It's obvious that they spent a lot of time loving and serving one another and the culture around them to the glory of God. The book of Acts, if you don't know this, what it is is really the historical account of the birth of the church. It's a great book. If you've been wondering, uh, I haven't been reading my Bible and I want to jump back in, the book of Acts is so, it's so rich and it speaks to us so much today in seeing how God worked through those early Christians. Um, it's, it's just beautiful. I mean, I like all the books of the Bible, but Acts is great. It's, it's an actual historical account written by Luke. Uh, and it talks about the, the birth of the church at Pentecost and its rapid spread through the surrounding nations. Uh, it paints for us a vivid picture of a people completely in love with Jesus that were living passionately and sacrificially in the light of the amazing truth of the gospel that they had come to believe. These people started living totally different than they ever had before. And the only difference is they had met Jesus. But it wasn't like this, they met Jesus and they just kind of assimilated that into everything else they were doing, the fact that they were impacted by the truth of the gospel, the fact that they understood that Jesus came to live in their place and to die in their place and rise again, that belief, the belief in the good news of that gospel message, it rocked them to the point where their life was different. They began to do different things. All of life was affected by this gospel message, and we could learn from that. Uh, the scriptures tell us that these early Christians gathered together both at the temple and in homes together. Um, and as you read it, you don't get the sense that the leaders had to try to convince people to do this. But that people were just, they were so full of the love of Christ and, and the excitement that comes in being a part of the church of the living God that you get this sense that they, they couldn't, they just couldn't wait to get together. They wanted to be together. How weird is that, right? They wanted to be with other Christians in fellowship. They wanted to sit and study the scriptures together. They were excited about getting together to pray and to lift each other up. And the excitement building on your faces tells me you are much like the church of Acts. Um, one other thing they did is uh, it seems that they ate meals together. They encouraged each other in faith, uh, and they just genuinely enjoyed uh, being around each other. Uh, the scriptures are clear in John chapter 15, and we talked about this. If you were here last week, you'll remember I had the three guys stand up here. One person was Jesus the vine. The other two were branches connecting. Uh, kind of a simple illustration, but sometimes simple truths are the most profound. Uh, in John 15, we're instructed that we are called to live lives that are connected and intertwined like the branches 
of a vine, right? Remember John 15? What does Jesus say? I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? So that vine is connected to the source of life, the ground, right? That plant has to be planted in the ground or it's not doing anything but shriveling and dying. Jesus is the source of life. We're the branches that come off of him, right? And so um, the inescapable truth is if you and I are connected to Jesus like branches on a vine, then we are automatically connected to each other or should be. But oftentimes, if someone was to observe from the outside, it wouldn't look like we were connected to that level. If someone was to look from the outside, oftentimes as Christians, our lives look like these kind of fragmented islands, and maybe we all bring our island together one time a week, high five and, you know, compare style choices. But other than that, are, like, are those people really together? Like, are those people's lives really, like, woven to the point that if, if something happened where they weren't together anymore, it would affect them? Like, it should matter, right? We should be connected to a group of Christians in, in such a deep and meaningful way that if, if for some reason we weren't anymore, it would, it would drastically affect everything about us. It, it, it should cause us to, to feel something, right? And for many of us, it's kind of like, you know, that's where I go. It's close. Or, you know, I know a couple people that go there or whatever. It's not this sense of I'm with this group of people on a mission and we're going to get it done no matter what. I'm going to lend my gifts to them. I'm going to pick up. I'm going to fill in where they're weak. They're going to do the same for me and we're all going to be stronger because we're together. That's how it's supposed to work. That's what it's supposed to look like. And we see that happening in the book of Acts, and so um, we can learn a lot from that. Many people falsely believe that they can be connected to Jesus but not his people. There's people that have written books in the last decade or so uh, with titles like, They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And I understand what people are getting at because many times organized religion, or however you want to say that, churches, church leaders have done things that have caused people to not trust them anymore. That's fair. That's a fair assessment. However, um, you know, people have gotten sick from eating tomatoes before. Does that mean we should burn every tomato plant that's ever, you know, grown on the whole, on the whole planet? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Where did that example come from, Pastor Vince? Well, here's the thing. I ate some tomatoes today right off the vine, and my tummy has been gurgling all day. So see, a lot of times... <laughs> Examples just come out of life, so there you go. You see a little window into preaching there, okay? Um, but but that's, the, that's the problem, man. We, we see maybe some leadership with, uh, or some Christian leader or, you know, certain organizations that maybe even call themselves Christian, but that's questionable. Um, they fall publicly or they do things that just clearly don't line up with the Scriptures. People get to the point where they're like, eh, I'm done with all that. I'm going to run this deal solo. I get it. I get the frustration. However, it's not a legitimate attitude. If you look through the scriptures, Christ died for the church. He calls us all to be a part of his church. Okay, and so we've, we've gone over that. Uh, eight weeks of doctrine, it came up a lot. The, the church is universal. All people that have been saved throughout all time by the blood of Christ, right? Then there's local expressions. The way you get connected into that body is by finding the group of people that God has called you to be on mission with. And the reason why that's important is there's some place, there's a group of people called to a mission that two things are going to happen. When you click into that, when you get in your spot, you're going to flourish and have joy like you've never had anywhere else. You're gonna, it's going to feel right because you're going to be where you're supposed to be. The other part is 
that group is going to be stronger because you're there. And if you're not there, that group's walking with a limp. That church community, that faith family is missing something. And oftentimes we don't think about it in those terms because we don't think about things in terms of mission. We're all just kind of doing our thing. The reality is there's a job to get done. We need to tell as many people as possible they don't have to go to hell. That's a big job, and it's real important. You don't, nothing else you do even comes close. I know you work, and I know you go to school, and I know you do stuff, but there's nothing else that comes even close in comparison to the mission of letting people know you don't have to spend eternity in hell, but you can be reconciled to the God that made you. Shoot, anybody got anything? It's, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. And I don't think if I was God, I would have trusted us with it. Because sometimes it just seems like it's not that big of a deal to us. But clearly he's smarter than me, and that's the way he obviously decided to do it. And so that's why we got to care about this stuff. The Bible calls the church to fight together like an army, work together like one body, and love each other like a family. We're supposed to relate to each other in all of those ways. But this is the last thing our enemy wants. Satan understands warfare. And he knows if you can divide, you can conquer. Everybody knows that. Anybody who's fought a fight knows that. And so he works really hard to keep us feeling isolated and alone instead of connected and loved. Doesn't he? He does. That's why I'm so excited about these community groups. Our vision for these community groups, it ties directly in with our vision as a church which we believe is really the vision laid out for all faithful churches that love Jesus, right? Uh, the, the verbiage can be slightly different, but it should be something close to this. For us, we want community groups to be a place where believers can be equipped to love God, to love people, and to make disciples so that we can see as many people as possible meet Jesus. Community groups is all about creating places where we can be equipped further to love God, love people, and make disciples so that we can all be better at reaching the goal. We can all help each other better to reach that goal of seeing as many people as possible. Know the love of Christ. Know the hope of Christ. Know the fact that Jesus does love them and he's made a way that they can be reconciled to God. It would do us good, and some of you don't remember, but some of you do. And, and, and I, I'm not encouraging you to go to a dark place, but sometimes it's good just to remember back to what it was like before you had hope. I remember what that was like. I remember putting my head on my pillow at night and having no reason to believe, none, that anything would get better. It's a deep despair. And many of the people that you walk by every day that have that veneer smile on, that's where they're at. That's why, in some form or fashion, every week, I'm trying to call you to mission. I'm trying to shake you out of this tendency that we have to just get in a groove and do our thing. Lives and eternities hang in the balance. You, dear one, because you know the gospel, you are called to share the gospel. And we'll do it better together. That's why community matters. That's why we're going to go through the effort of strategically building community groups and encourage everybody. Some of you don't need encouragement. Some of you are like, sign me up and let me know when they are, right? You're pumped. You're way ahead of us, okay? 
<laughs> some of you, <laughs> you know, are you. And so <laughs> you're already crafting excuses and, and, and all of that. Um, listen, this is, this is important. That's why we would take weeks and, and set aside, I would set aside time for us in the Holy Scriptures to lay out why community matters, why it's important. Of course, it always is going to come back tying to mission and Jesus and doing what it is that we're really called to do. So, uh, but I'm really excited about community groups. I know, I'm confident in my heart how this is going to go. There's going to be some people, they're going to want nothing to do with it because they've had bad community group experiences or they're just not nice people or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Um, they just have a bad attitude about others in general. Um, so there's going to be different, but those that are going to get together, they're going to embrace this. They're going to understand the whole big picture and why it matters for accomplishing the mission. They're going to get together. And as testimonies begin to start flowing out of this thing, even the hard cells are coming. That's the way I see this going down because this is going, this is going to unlock potential that right now is stifled in this group of, of Christian soldiers. This is the next thing God's called us to do to get to the next level so that we are better prepared, better equipped soldiers of the cross. That we are a family better equipped to go out and love this culture around us and to call them to trust Jesus. Okay? Um, much time, thought, and prayer has gone into the structure of these groups. And so what I want to share with you is some of the how and why of our community group strategy um, and this is so that you will know what to expect. But I also want to stir anticipation and excitement in you about how God is going to use these groups to further his kingdom. And it's going to be for our good and, and for his glory. And some of you may be visiting, you're like, this seems really focused on just what you guys are doing. The principles that I'm talking about here translates to anywhere. Community is important anywhere. Being, having real, actual, authentic relationships with Christians that will love you, challenge you, and push you to good works, that's important anywhere. So this may not be your church home. Well, hallelujah. Uh, maybe you've already got this where you're at. Great, keep going. Maybe you don't. Get it going. Authentic community relationships is really important. Okay? Um, and not everyone or everywhere has to do it the way we're doing it, but this is how we're going to go about it by God's grace. Uh, turn with me to Luke 14, if you would. We're going to start in verse 16. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you kind of the rundown of what a, what a community group is going to be like, and uh, I'm going to give you some scriptures and some reasons why. You know, we, we didn't just look around and say, oh, man, there's a, there's a bunch of churches doing small groups, so we better do that, and, and just, you know, assemble something together real quick so we could say we had it. I, we, I am not about just doing and making programs and stuff just to do it. If it doesn't have a strategic purpose for accomplishing the mission or the vision, I'm not doing it. We, there's, we don't have a lot of time for extra distractions. If this was not crucial to accomplish the job God's given us to do, then we wouldn't mess with it. So I'm going to lay out for you what a community group's going to be like, how it's broke up, and why we're going to do what we're going to do. Okay? Um. Community groups are going to start with just spending time together and eating something. Now, <clears throat> when I say eating something, I'm not talking about, you know, 
lamb chops with mint jelly, you know, organic long grain wild rice, seasoned with coriander, garnished with pine nuts, you know, toasted, of course. Uh, I'm not talking about full course, you know, grandma Sunday dinner, probably something a little lighter than that, you know, but um, we're going to look here that strategically just spending time eating something together. You guys are like, I had no idea that guy had that much class. He just looks like a dumb hillbilly. <laughs> I know how to eat good, okay? I may not have the fashion thing down and all of that, but uh, I can eat, okay, with the best of them. So, um, but we really we recognize the importance of eating together. Uh, this is highlighted in the book of Acts that the early church ate together often. I mean, the scriptures took the time to mention they were taking meals together as an instruction to us. We should ask ourselves when we see, why was the early church eating together all the time? And why did God see fit to make that a point? We should, we should tune into that. Well, okay, what's the deal there? Uh, we, we know that the book of Luke tells us that Jesus came eating and drinking, and so much so that stuffy religious guys in his day called him a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus, he spent so much time either going somewhere to eat with people or leaving from somewhere to eat with people that the, guy, the, the stuffy religious guys in his day, the Pharisees, were like, all this guy does is run around eating, and drink, right? And so Jesus never sinned, right? Everyone on that, on that train with me, right? Totally perfect. Did a lot of eating and drinking. Now, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, the portions are probably smaller, so this is not me encouraging you to, like, well, Jesus ate a bunch. I'm adding more meals to my day. Um, <laughs> not where I'm going with this. This is not, you know, this is not, <laughs> this is not free reign for you to go get a season past the Golden Corral and just pull your chair up to the buffet. Uh, okay, we still have to do things in moderation and hallelujah. Uh, use wisdom. But uh, Jesus did understand that eating together was important. Um, he obviously understood the power of a meal shared together to express both trust and friendship. Cultures forever have sat down to eat together as an expression of friendship and trust. <clears throat> There's an equality to sitting at the table together and sharing a meal. Right? You're all sitting at the same level. Uh, we also know that in the book of Revelation, all those who spend eternity with Jesus, because they put faith in the good news of the gospel, they're going to partake in a great feast known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And sometimes the imagery can be confusing. Jesus is referred to a lamb often. It's a, it's a throwback, to use the word you guys all like to use on social media, it's a throwback to the Old Testament where a spotless lamb would be sacrificed for the sin of the people. Jesus is the spotless lamb, the sinless one who bled in our place. And so that's where that imagery connects. And there's, there is a great feast uh, laid out for us. The, the picture is painted in the book of Revelation called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And so in a way, us getting together to share meals together, spending time eating together, it's good practice for heaven. Okay? Um, so I'm going to read Luke chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 16. <clears throat> And I'm going to read to verse 24, okay? But he said to him, remember, Jesus is teaching a parable here, right? So what he does oftentimes is he, he tells a story, but you've got to read between the lines. He's trying to teach you something with the story. A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at, that, at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say, those, say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, 
I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife for that reason. I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. The master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. There's a few things that I want to point out here. The first thing I want to say in the the reason we came to this scripture is in, in understanding how to interpret parables, is Jesus really talking about a dinner here? At the end of the day, no, not, not really. What he's doing is he's trying to paint a word picture and teach a principle with an example. But I find it interesting. What he is really talking about here is the invitation to come and be a part of his gospel, to come and partake of life with him. And he uses a meal as an example of that. To me, that means something, that, that he would even equate that there. Now, here's the next thing I want you to see. Because I can't really read these scriptures with you and not point this out because we are so prone to do the same thing. Here's what happened. The people that got the invites, what does it say that they did? They instantly begin to make excuses. And notice the excuses. And here's the thing. Martin Luther said this that our hearts are idle factories. You must know this about yourself. Every one of you, I want you to be aware that you are prone to create idols in your life. Sometimes, and, and these, these things represent, the first guy bought a piece of land, right? So that could mean many things. I'm looking at it. I'm seeing a guy that's getting his, he's getting his life together. He bought a piece of land. He's trying to kind of get settled down and get life together, and he doesn't really have time to mess with Jesus at this point. And the other guy, he's, he's bought five yoke of oxen, right? And so what do you buy oxen for? You're probably going to plow a field. This guy's got a business going. He's about to make that dough. He's going to make it rain. Well, uh, here's the problem. Bro, now you lost your invite to the only dinner that matters. When the money all burns, now what? The other guy married a wife. I think that's pretty straightforward. We are very, very prone Two things happen all the time. People without a spouse make an idol out of wanting a spouse. The only thing that matters is getting somebody to love me. Here's the problem. Somebody loves you. He proved it. He stretched out and bled for you. Took your place. Okay? Please stop idolizing this idea of marriage someday meeting all your needs, answering all your problems, and being this ultimate source of happiness. Ask my wife. It isn't all that. She really loves me. I'm just kidding. Um, but here's the thing, man. Marriage is much more about making you holy than making you happy. Marriage is much more about God putting someone in your life that's going to be there all the time. They should love Jesus more than they love you, and that means they're going to call you out on your stuff. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? But that's the, the to, so we have this idol of this figment of our imagination sometimes of what marriage is going to fix and how happy it's going to make us, or sometimes flat out we can make a spouse an idol. We, we, we don't love Jesus more than them. That happens. 
we do expect too much of them. We expect them to be this source of fulfillment and joy that they never, ever can fulfill. And so you set them up for failure. And then you're frustrated when they can't be Jesus to you. Well, that wasn't fair to begin with. Only Jesus can be Jesus. Only Jesus can fill that Jesus-shaped hole in your heart. Okay? And at the end of the day, uh, I don't worship my wife. We worship Jesus together. So if he says come to dinner, honey, get some shoes on. We're going to dinner. <laughs> That's how it's going to go. Um, <clears throat> just a couple of things. Like I said, this, it's interesting to me. This is clearly Jesus talking about the, the invitation to come and partake of, you know, this, this meal is coming to partake of his salvation. People are too, you know, busy with whatever, their idols, to mess with him. But the very fact that Jesus would see it fit to compare that whole deal uh, to, to a, a meal just shows the, the potential power, um, I think, that getting together and eating has. And has it not, do you, does experience not tell you this? Have you not bonded with people over a meal? I mean, I know why Jesus did it, because I, I, I can tell in my own life. Some of the greatest conversations I've had have just been, because it kind of makes you sit down and, and chill, right? Now, I know some of you, like, you know, you're the old drive and eat and, and talk on the phone and crazy stuff going on, but when you sit down to have a meal, like, you kind of you got to chill for a second and, and just sitting on a table looking across from somebody or, I, I don't care if I'm standing there holding the plate, like, I, I have to chill out. I'm not on my phone. I'm not doing this and that, and it, it just... There's a, there's a power and, and an ability to bond for some reason over eating. I don't know if it's something that God takes delight in redeeming because, honestly, we fell over a meal. I don't know. I don't know if there's a reason that God anointed it that way, but in case you're not understanding what I'm saying, um, we fell over a meal. Satan came and said, hold on, there's, I know you can eat any fruit over, up in here, but what about this one over here? Doesn't that look good? And instead of sitting at the Lord's table, we decided to take Satan's offer. It hasn't worked out real well. I think God delights in, in redeeming food and eating and, and the eating of meals together. <clears throat> so we're gonna, we want to spend the first part of our community group gathering, just eating, laughing, and talking about life with each other. So that's what you expect. As you walk in to a community group, that's what's going to be happening. People are going to be genuinely enjoying each other's company. Um, they're going to be sharing a meal together, and it's, it's going to be awesome. Um, the next thing that's going to happen as, as that time comes to an end is we're going to have a time of Scripture study and discussion. Um, the vast majority of the time is we're going to, because this, this small group of people in this community group, we're going to sit down together. And uh, the vast majority of the time, it's going to be a further exploration of the sermon the week before. Okay, so we're going to take, take notes, points, scriptures from what it is that we studied in the scriptures together uh, the week before. And we're going to have an opportunity in community group to explore that farther, to ask questions that maybe you couldn't stop in the middle right now and say, hey, what about, you know, most of the time it'd probably be about dumb analogies. Like, why did you say that? That's probably your questions most of the time. You can't ask that in community group either. You can never ask that question. Just bury those questions deep down inside and forget you had them. Okay? Good. Um, 
No, but I mean, it, that's exciting to me to be able to sit with a smaller group of people and like really dig into, because we don't have time, I don't have time to dig into all the commentary. Do you understand how many people have written rich, beautiful commentary on Luke 14, 16 through 24? You could spend months digging out beautiful, rich truth from this small passage of scripture. And so there'll be an opportunity to do that, to just sit and, and talk about how, how does this apply practically, specifically in my life. You know, uh, that's, that's what that time's going to be about, is, is to just explore together more of what it is that God was working with us all together um, to increase continuity and, and uh, congruence with what we're doing on mission together. Uh, it's time to relate those scriptures to real life, to relate those points to real life, to put yourself into it and hear others do the same and to be encouraged. Um, and it's an opportunity to ask questions, but it's also an opportunity to answer questions. I'm believing, God, that you're going to be stretched in your community group as not only as you ask questions and have those answered so you're growing from learning, but as your experience, you're going to see God use you to answer other people's questions. Because there, it may just, just so happen that you walked through something in your life that God delivered you through, and now you've got someone sitting across the room from you that's got a question that pertains exactly to what God just delivered you from. And you will see that happen all the time. I guarantee it. Because that's just how he does stuff. He's gonna put, God's going to put you in a position in these community groups, not only to be ministered to, but to minister. And I, you know, I don't know if I've said this here before. I understand that there's a, a you know, five-fold ministry gift laid out in the scriptures, that there are leaders and governance in the church, but we are all called to push each other to love and good works. We are all called to be an encouragement to each other. We are all called. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we would be ambassadors of reconciliation. We should all be lending our gifts to each other. We should all be lending our testimonies and experiences to each other so that we all are stronger for it. And that's a be- we're going to have a beautiful opportunity to do that in these community groups. Okay? You're excited about this, right? I'm excited about getting in little rooms with people and talking about real life and scriptures and Jesus. The rooms, maybe I shouldn't have said it, the rooms aren't always going to be little. But getting in a room with a smaller group of people so that we can talk about stuff. Like, what is going on here? Do you got like dungeons and stuff? No. Um, that's not what's going to happen. Turn with me to James 5.16, okay? So we're going we're gonna to come into community group. If you're not late, if you're not late, you'll get something to eat, right? You'll get something to drink. you get time to fellowship, laugh, talk about life. Um, and so that'll be fun. We all like doing that. Then there's going to be a time of studying the scriptures together, um, you know, time to ask each other questions, answer each, other, each other's questions, talk about how what we're uh, working through as a church applies in each of our lives individually. We'll have an opportunity to do all that. Um, then we're going to separate in the end into smaller groups uh, by gender. So guys will be separating with guys, girls will be separating with girls, and we're going to take time for prayer and accountability. We're going to take time to ask each other hard questions. We're going to pray for each other, and we're going to keep each other accountable. Um, Some of you may already have beads of sweat developing on your palms um, because of what I just described to you. Let me read this scripture, and let me talk to you for a second before you freak out, okay? I know this doesn't sound normal, and I know it might sound a little weird and intrusive that I'm going to get in in a... 
room with one or two other people and like ask real questions and maybe even confess sin. Um, maybe you've not done that before, but that's because we've probably sinfully strayed from what it is God's clearly commanded us to do. Let's read this scripture together and see if it does not instruct us um, maybe how to think about this, okay? James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Um, now that you may be healed here, I, I really do believe that that's multidimensional. On one hand, I believe that unconfessed and unrepentant sin can block us from receiving uh, the gift of healing physically in our bodies, in our life. I think this also applies to, and probably more so, to the healing of, of the sin sickness that weighs us down. The confessing of sin to another Christian for accountability, there's, there's so much healing that comes in that automatically because when we bottle, some of you know this emotionally, some of you are emotional bottlers, um, when you're mad, you just keep pressing it down and hoping it goes away. But if you've been doing that for any amount of time, you know that normally it doesn't. Um, some, some weird thing that would normally not set you off one day just ignites it, and all that stuff you thought you pushed down comes out. And you totally freak out, and nobody knows what the heck's going on. It's like, you know, <laughs> I just ate the last of the peanut butter. I'm not sure why. I just heard every word I've ever been told not to say. You know what I mean? Like... I just heard every four-word ex expletive in the Urban Dictionary. Um, it had nothing to do with peanut butter, right? It had everything to do with the fact that I just kept cramming all my emotions and thought that would work. It's not going to work. The same thing with sin. You can, listen, we all, all, all because of pride have a tendency to hide sin, not be open about it. We want to put on our best face, not let people know that we struggle. Well, all that's sinful and wrong. If James 5.16 wasn't in there, we probably could have wiggled around this. We might have got out of it. But it's there, isn't it? So we have to deal with it. Um, some of you might say, I don't need to confess my sin to anybody. I'll confess it to Jesus. Listen, Jesus doesn't need you to confess your sin to someone else for you to be forgiven by him. But it says you do need that to be healed. So I think you could be forgiven by God but still be dealing internally and externally with the consequences of your sin because you refuse to be open and vulnerable with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And he probably put us in this spot because he knew how much stronger we would be bonded together when we are vulnerable and open like this. He probably knew that this would equip us to be more family-like and soldier-like than isolated island-like. He probably knew if he called us to this, to repent and confess sin to each other and be real with each other, that it would make us the army that he's, he's seen in his mind's eye, that he's always hoped for us from the beginning. He probably knew that this would, this would breed in us the kind of unity he prayed for in John 17, asking that we would relate to each other the same way he and the Father relate to each other. Did you hear what I just said? Are we working together like Jesus and the Father? Are we clicking on all levels like they do? There's never a glitch there. They always, always, always are on the same page, doing the same thing, on the same mission. And for some reason, it's got to do with redeeming us. Like, if you're the cosmic, infinite God of the universe, I don't know why you keep messing with guys like me. I know me. 
how prone I am to worship everything but him, to make everything else a higher priority, to pridefully turn my back on him, to choose sin over obedience. And yet he's long-suffering, and yet somehow he's made it his business to spend time convicting me, drawing me back, lovingly calling me to himself, and equipping me to help others to do the same. I'm so, I'm so glad I'm not God, because you'd all be totally done for, <laughs> including me. <laughs> I, I, we're too much trouble if it was up to me, but thank God he's long-suffering like he is. I mean, I'd have started over with some other race that looked better, you know what I mean, just for starters. Um, you guys didn't like that, did you? I'm pretty. I don't know what he's talking about. Obviously can't see me. <laughs> My hairs did and everything. Okay. I know. I know. You've got a lot of Gen Ys in here. You know, you've been told to keep that high self-esteem all your life, and you're special like a snowflake, no other like you. I know. I know. <clears throat> Help me, Lord. Um, here's the thing. We want to obey this scripture because we know God didn't command us to be open and confess because he wants us to be ashamed and embarrassed. God did not give us this command because he wants to shame us or embarrass us. That's never what he's about. Whenever, always remember when you read your Bible, always remember when you see something you, you're tempted to not agree with in the scriptures First of all, humble yourself. Secondly, remember that God's a perfect father. And if he's asked you to do something, it's for your good. If he's asked you not to do something, it's for your good. You must be convinced of this. Even if you don't have all the mental faculty to understand why he's saying what he's saying or why he's demanding what he's demanding. If he is, it's for your good. This is always true. Here's the thing. When imperfect humble people saved by grace come together to confess sin to each other, they pray for each other, and encourage each other to love and good works, it destroys the power of the lie that so many of us believe. And here's those lies, that we are the only ones struggling. That lie is so pervasive that I'm the only one dealing with anything in general, but this thing specifically. Part of what this is about in James 5 is getting you the truth to destroy the lies that you believe. So many of you believe that you struggle alone. When there's someone sitting two seats over from you, struggling the same and desperate for someone to be real enough to let them know. You need not struggle alone. And you have no idea how your struggle and testimony may rescue someone else's life. Because you're humble enough and open enough to say something. Because you understand there is no shame and embarrassment left when we are saved by grace. Amen. Yes, I sin. Yes, I fail. Today and every day. Yet grace is showered upon me. My God is long-suffering. He loves me and rescues me, redeems me, reconciles me to himself and you somehow. That's the God we serve. That's why shame is no longer among us. That's why I will be able to sit and look you in the eye and let you know. You might want to get out a pad of paper for all the stuff I did this week. And I'm not saying that that's, that's not even what this is. We don't have to start keeping a log. Well, guys, uh, they gave us 20 minutes to talk. I've, I've got 4,023 sins here on this list, so 
I don't know if you guys, do you just want me to read fast or how do we want to do this? Um, that's not the point. The point is, is it not true that, listen, sometimes I, sometimes I sin and I instantly realize it and it's something dumb. I just, I, I was kind of, I, I tripped into something. I, I ensnared myself in sin. I, I got angry and it's just very obvious I shouldn't have and I repent quickly and I, and I know I'm forgiven. But sometimes there's things that linger and I have to struggle and fight through. There's temptations that seem to be repetitive and, and it's something that even as I'm, as I'm praying through it and I'm asking for God's grace to defeat it, I'm still feeling there's a, there's a battle there. It's, just, it's not that easy. Those are the types of things. When we break into these smaller groups that we want to be open about, please pray for me. I'm, I'm, struggling, I'm struggling with this. this is, and it's not, it may not be the first time I've struggled with this. You know, I, I want to make a distinction here for you because I preached on true repentance a couple of weeks ago. And I, and I need you to understand something. Because 1 Corinthians 5 makes it clear that a, a church leader with a spine will not tolerate unrepentant sin. But that is different than struggling with a recurring temptation. Okay? Here's the difference. If I ask you the question, what do you want more than anything? If you, if you peer down into the deepest part of your heart, what is it you want? Do you want to obey Jesus and do you want to be free from sin? Or is the deepest thing you want to do what you want? That's how I find out which category you're in. If you really, really want to serve Jesus more than anything else, then we're going to work with you, we're going to love you, and we're going to help you. All, forever. But if I look at you in the eye and what I get from you is that at the end of the day, I know it's wrong, but I really just want to do, I, I just want to do what I want to do. That won't be tolerated very long. You can't just let unrepentant willful sin run through the ranks. That's, that's, that's like letting a Benedict Arnold run around in, in, in your army. I just saw some scrunched eyebrows. Benedict Arnold was a famous traitor. Um, it's like letting a traitor or a spy run around in your midst. Because clearly somebody that is going to willfully say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want. They're clearly not on the mission. If the mission, if telling as many people as possible about Jesus and loving God and loving people and making disciples, if that's walking this way, somebody with that kind of attitude is going that way. And so... Sometimes they need to be let go to, to go the way they want. And one of two things will happen. They'll, they'll realize as they try to do it on their own that it's painful and they will miss and desire the fellowship of the people of God and they will come running back like the prodigal son. Or they will continue in their ignorance and their pride all the way to their destruction. There's two options. However... You coming into small group, breaking down with other brothers or sisters, and talking about a sin that you've struggled with more than once is not the same as saying, I know it's wrong and I don't care. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand? I'm, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to be in condemnation. Just because you've struggled with something, if something has a stronghold on you, we're going to pray with you, we're going to lift your arms up, and we're going we're gonna to keep studying the scriptures. We're going to keep asking God on your behalf to, to vanquish that enemy from your life. We're going to stick with you. If what you want more than anything is to repent and obey the Lord. 
if what you want more than anything is to do what the heck you want to do, then we're going to deal with you differently. We have to. I have to. I don't have any option left in the scriptures. Okay? There is a difference there. When imperfect, humble people saved by grace come together, they confess sin to each other, they pray for each other, they encourage each other to love and good works, it destroys the power of the lie that so many of us believe. We've already talked about the lie that we are the only ones struggling or that we're the only ones hurting. These lies are destroyed when humble Christians will come together and they will confess sin one to another. They will confess struggle one to another. They will be open and vulnerable with one another. These lies are no longer allowed to run rampant among us because we see clearly in the obedience to these scriptures, I'm not the only one that struggles. I'm not the only one that stumbles. And that's a good thing. That's a holy thing. And it's, some, it's a gift from God. It, it also destroys the lie that there's nobody who cares enough to stand and fight with you through the trials of this life. Because some of you buy that one. Some of you sit alone. And you let the devil convince you that that's exactly what you are, alone. That there's nobody that cares enough to pray for you. There's nobody that cares enough to stand with you, to fight with you, to go back to back with you to stand against the enemy with you. Here's the thing. The lie that you're the only one struggling, the lie that you're the only one sinning, the lie that you're all by yourself, that's all of those are never true. Because there is always a Christian somewhere that if they were humble and you were humble and you could get together, you would see. Your situation is not as unique as you think. There's nothing new under the sun. Somebody probably is struggling or has struggled in the way you're struggling. And even if it's not specific, in many ways, sin is sin, and the principles to overcome and defeat sin in our life, they work universally. And sometimes all you need is someone to, to just be standing with you in prayer. And that's what this should provide. And it should create and forge real, deep, accountable relationships. There are always other Christians yearning for real friends and fellow soldiers. But it's oftentimes the lies that we believe that keep us apart and thus unable to help each other. Being a part of a community group is a great way to shatter the lies that keep us isolated and replace them with the truth that sets us free. This thing all boils down to lies and truth. And Satan knows if he can divide us, he can conquer us. And it may not even be that he has to go so far as to get us all to get so offended that we don't gather together as the church. But if he can just keep us convinced that the best thing to do is keep each other at arm's length, he's still dividing us. And he's still winning battles he shouldn't. Because we'd be stronger closer. We'd be stronger if we were more real with each other. This is part of the function of community groups. We will be stronger because of this. Some of you, I understand, you will refuse to participate in that because you fear exposure. Um, some, some of you have dealt with rejection before when you've been honest, and so you've just decided, I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, let me just lovingly encourage you, please don't believe those lies. Please know that Jesus would not ask you 
to confess sins one to another so that you may be healed if it was not going to bring healing to you. Some of you, exactly what you need is the exact thing you don't want to do. And it's to be open, to be vulnerable, to tell the truth to somebody and let them pray for you and hold you accountable. Accountability. Accountability is so key to walking out this Christian life and it's, it's something that it's a good way to gauge your spiritual maturity. If you desire accountability, you are wise. If accountability sounds to you like, I don't want somebody in my business, it's very foolish. A wise man or a wise woman desires accountability. Proverbs 27, 17 says that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We were created to be in this thing together. That's how it's supposed to go. And accountability is a beautiful gift. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's just rarely done right. And I just want to encourage you to assess your life. Assess your life. Do you have real accountability? Is there is there somebody that really knows what you're thinking, what you're doing, what's real? Is there somebody that, is there somebody in your life that, now let's just do it. You should have three levels of accountability in your life. I was, I, I was going back and forth with myself whether I was going to lay this out to you. Some of you have heard this so many times, you're like, oh my gosh, I could stand up and say it. Some of you have never heard it. I don't care, it's good for all of you. So here we go. You need three levels of accountability in your life. Some of you are not going to like this. You should have someone above you in the Lord or some people above you in the Lord. You should have people next to you in the Lord, and you should have people under you in the Lord. And I'm going to show you that Jesus had all of them, okay? Because you're going to say, well, where'd you pull this from? Jesus did it. That's the only argument I ever need, so ha, ha, ha. All right? <laughs> Who did Jesus have above him, right? God the Father. I only do what I hear God the Father tell me. I only speak what I hear him tell me to speak. God was submitted to or Jesus was submitted to God the Father. Yes, yes. Hebrews 13 tells us you should be submitted to godly leadership in your life. This is not some self-serving deal where I'm saying you need to listen to me all the time. All I'm saying is the scriptures say this, so you need to deal with this and figure out who this is in your life, okay? You need somebody in your life that can tell you to shut up. Do you want that? Ask yourself. A sign of Christian maturity is that you want somebody in your life that's biblical and loves you. That's what you need to know. Two things. They need to be a spiritual person that knows the Bible and they need to really love you to have this right. But you should desire to have someone in your life that can hit the reset button for you. Are you able at any point to start thinking stupid thoughts? Doing stupid stuff, saying dumb things. Are you, is that possible? Is that on the plane of possibility for you? If you're not nodding your head vigorously, you need to come to community groups. <laughs> because you are in pride and you need humbled. Okay? We all have the potential to get off track. Okay? And we, there's, the Bible talks many times about the fact that you should have somebody that if they say something to you, if they challenge you, minimally it should hold significant weight. If not, it just overrides whatever the heck you think. There are older men, biblical men, 
that in my life, that if they said to me, son, you're an heir, you need to stop and you need to think about what you're doing, minimally, I'm going to halt directly in my tracks and I'm going to think real hard about what they're saying. And even if I disagree, I may still just do what they're saying, assuming that God is using them to correct me. Some of you don't like that idea because you've grown up in a, you know, ruggedly independent, autonomous America that teaches you that you're your own king or queen. Um, and I get that. And some of you think, oh, man, he's just trying to set himself up to tell me whatever. I, I'm not saying I need to be this person. Some of you have godly parents, really great godly parents. And if they tell you something, sometimes you just need to close your mouth and listen to them. For some of you, it is going to be a pastor or other leader in your life. You need somebody that can hit the emergency brake for you, right? Don't you? Do you need that? Yeah, you do. You're not, you're not excited enough about accountability above you. It's fun, and it's good, and it makes sure you don't go and do something crazy, man. You need it. You need to be excited about it. It's a gift from God, okay? This one you'll like a little better because it's less authoritative, and I know authority, ugh. somebody telling me what to do, right? Uh, you need someone next to you in the Lord. You need friends that are in a similar place spiritually than you, a similar place in life than you. This does not necessarily mean age, but they should be at, running at a similar pace so that as you're going through this race of life, Paul calls this Christian life a race, right? And as you're running, you should have people next to you in this race, man. If you, if you go to stumble and trip, they grab your arm, and they're right there with you. They're the ones, it, it's not the general handing out orders but that's the one, it's the one you're standing right next to, man, fighting on the front line. You need people next to you. And those people you're going to talk to different and, and probably more often than the people above. The people above you in the Lord, that's kind of like the, the safety release valve on the hot water heater that keeps it from blowing up. You know what I mean? Like, you don't go to them for every issue. That's, people next to you are going to know way quicker than the people above you when you're faking it. And when you're acting a fool, they're going to be like, hold on, they're going to call you out quicker. They'll see it because they're right there with you, right? Does that make sense? And so somebody with you, next to you in the Lord. Um, Jesus had close men with him. He had the 12 disciples, yes, but he had three men with him. That they were with him all the time. Now, Jesus was perfect, didn't mess up, so they didn't ever get a chance to go, ha, Jesus, repent, right? He didn't need to, but he had people close to him, man. They were with him all the time. And he, I'm not going to say that he's still master and king, but you get a sense, he said, I'm not, I'm not calling you guys slaves anymore. You're my friends. You're my friends. You, you need friends in the Lord that are with you. And I believe every single person, I don't care if you submitted your life to Christ yesterday, you should be looking to grab a hold of somebody and help them along in their journey. I'm going to tell you right now, one of the highest forms of accountability in my life, when, when Satan shoots those flaming arrows of temptation at my mind, um, one of the first things that flashes across my head when I think about consequences is not the, the men in my life I'm submitted to coming and hammering me for being an idiot. And, and sometimes it's not even the people next to me that I know that they would, they would come and lovingly correct me, but the faces of those that I'd be letting down the faces of those that I would be leading astray by saying, hey, I know, where, I, know, I know Jesus and I'm following him. Come follow me. And they've trusted and started to 
started to come along and then I'm just going to, you know, pull a 180 on them and do something different. I don't want to do that. There's a serious accountability that comes in putting yourself out there and beginning to let people learn from you and lean on you. You should have people under you in the Lord. Some of you don't like that idea because you would say, I'm not living in such a way that anyone should follow me. Okay, then fix it. Live in such a way that people could follow you to Jesus. It's very simple. We make it complicated, but it's not. 